Welcome to Local Share Green Action Podcast. This show is produced by Go Green Locally, a 501c3 nonprofit providing tools and resources for people that are looking for ways to take even more successful local action that makes a difference for our people and our planet. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with a young adult who's been studying and working as an environmental activist for years. Even though she is now an environmental scientist, she continues to work on her own with the community on local eco-action projects to help people, nature, and the environment as well. I'm speaking with Samantha Waldron. Samantha Waldron is a passionate advocate for the environment and an active community member. Her deep connection with nature was nurtured from an early age by her father, instilling in her a profound respect for Mother Earth. Her journey as an environmentalist activist began during her high school years when she joined an environmental club, immersing herself in various causes, such as the preservation of horseshoe crabs and Cape May. Driven by a desire to understand the interconnectedness of environmental issues, with social and economic inequality, Samantha expanded her knowledge by watching documentaries like The Story of Stuff and The Story of Plastic. Motivated by this newfound awareness, she joined the high school division of Rotary International, where she actively volunteered and later served as president of Interact. Her dedication to community service earned her awards and scholarships and a position as the vice president of Rotaract New Jersey. After graduating from Rutgers in 2020, she is now working as a certified environmental remediation scientist using her skills for environmental conservation. Aside from her professional work, Samantha consistently demonstrates her personal commitment to the environment and her community through local eco-action projects. Welcome to the show, Samantha. Thank you so much for having me, Jenny. I'm so excited to, to meet you and to share my experiences. Yeah, well, likewise, and I'm so excited to speak with you and learn more about your path of green action with environmental studies, a professional career, and the way you've gotten involved in making a difference in your local community. So what planted the seeds for you originally to want to start taking some kind of green action? Yeah, yeah, my my father is an outdoorsman and has a deep connection with Sussex County resident background. My mom as well. They also go out together, you know, fishing and nature watching as well. For uh, my professional career, when I went to Cape May with the Environmental Club, we discovered horseshoe crabs and uh, kiwi birds and uh, all sorts of species and uh, admiring the ecosystem. And I realized that through learning about it, their habitat destruction was anthropogenic and uh, overfishing and all sorts of impacts on the environment. I then learned in high school about, you know, the story of stuff. And I realized that I wanted to do literally anything about it, whether it was learning about recycling, environmental engineering, and, uh, you know, solar or wind power or anything. And once I got to college, I realized that bioremediation was my my biggest calling. And uh, as an environmental remediation scientist, we protect human health and the environment by investigating and uh, remediating or cleaning up contamination from oil, gas, chemicals, or any sort of manufacturing. And uh, there are many ways that the things that we buy and the things that we use impact our environment, which then impacts us because we're a part of the ecosystem. 
And um, outside of my professional work, I realized that, you know, building the native rain garden of interfaith peace, which is also a pollinator garden, you know, for bees and butterflies and different types of insects, we like to take many different types of actions because it's not just one all-encompassing solution. We have to do everything possible to help the environment, which is helping ourselves, really. This is about self-preservation just as much as it is about the planet. There's a common misconception that, you know, the planet will go on without us and that, you know, the planet will bounce back and be fine, which is wonderful and all, but it's also about humans too. And, you know, preserving our beautiful home planet for many generations to come. Absolutely. I understand that your dad was a big part of your early education, as we mentioned, and respect of nature. Can you share some maybe memories of how he did this? Yes, of course. If you actually look at some of my baby pictures, there's pictures of me in like a pop-up crib in the woods where my parents would go fishing and I would be playing in my crib in the woods. He would also like carry me on him with like a baby carrier and he would be fly fishing with me on his chest or on his back. And, uh, you know, just being in nature is all you really need in order to appreciate it. Just by growing up and developing your your reality and your perspective around nature because you observe nature in its prime with all the animals and seeing them and hearing them. The birds chirp and sing when they feel safe. And when we're quiet and observing and we sit for a while and meditate in the woods, we can hear all sorts of crazy stuff. And it's really great. Yeah, that is so cool. <laughs> Thank so, you. So for people that don't live in your area, what are the horseshoe crabs facing right now in the way of environmental issues? And has it gotten any better or worse lately? Yeah, I actually live in Sussex County, which is the northmost state or the northmost county of New Jersey, where High Point and uh, Newton is. But the horseshoe crabs are actually down south in Cape May along the shore. And uh, their blue blood is actually used for medical research and has actually been furthering medical research since the 70s. And not only are they useful for humans, but they're also living fossils that have been alive for millions of years. So everyone likes to cite Charles Darwin and the survival of the fittest, which means that if you develop coping mechanisms and assimilate to environmental changes, you can pass on your genetic information for many generations, which means that your genetic form and phenotypes that come from your genetic makeup is suitable for the environment. And because it's survived for so many years, this fossil, this living fossil, these crabs are living forms of history and show that they are optimal for surviving on earth and in the ocean. And because of the anthropogenic or people caused impacts, their habitat loss, like with plastics, chemical contamination, which is why I'm in remediation, overfishing, and not replenishing the environment or caring for their environment as we take from it does destroy their ability to um, procreate and they have complex mating patterns 
And, you know, people also mess with the crabs when they're, while they're trying to nest on the beach and lay their eggs. And uh, fortunately, the environmental protection agencies down south are working on, you know, roping off certain spots and educating the public. But it's always important for us to raise awareness and also consider writing it in legislation and voting for people who care about conserving and preserving the beauty and natural resources of our environment, which benefits us just as much as it benefits the world around us. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people just don't have the awareness, such as yourself and, and from your so many studies, which is awesome to share that with others. So when you got involved in the school, Rotaract group in, in your school, did you know much about the group initially? And if you did, what did you think about what the group was going to be like and was it actually like? That's a great question, Jenny. I really appreciate you asking because when I was in high school in about like 2013 to 14 was when I joined Interact, which is the high school division of Rotary, just like you said. And I was expecting it to be fast paced with a high commitment and I thought my whole life was going to stop for it and I wasn't going to have time for anything else, but that's just simply not true. And I've been involved with Rotary ever since. I did it in college for Rotaract and uh, the young adult, you know, which is not just college, but also like anyone up to 30. Turns out Rotary is very flexible and understanding that everyone has their lives. They have commitments outside of volunteering. It is unpaid after all. And uh, it, you really go at your own pace and they have events together. You meet all sorts of fun people. You can go on academies and win scholarships. And it's really up to you for yourself as an individual to decide how often you can dedicate your time. It can be one meeting per month or it can be, you know, going to an event here and there. And, you know, any skill that you have can be useful in Rotary. You know, next week on Wednesday, we'll be going to the Mana House to be serving food for the folks who need it. And uh, anything from trash pickups to cooking to making shoes for kids in Uganda or traveling across the world to Nepal, like I did for Rotaract at Rutgers. I had the privilege of attending Rutgers University in New Brunswick for the School of Environmental and Biological Sciences. And that was where I was when I discovered the Rutgers division of Rotaract, where they collaborate with the Rotary Club of Branchburg and the Rotary Club of White House. And that was actually how I was able to take a trip to Nepal for humanitarian work. We had school supplies, health supplies, toys, books. We did a little bit of period education, a little bit of school painting. We paint, helped paint a schoolhouse and uh, interacting with kids of all ages. It was really just an, an amazing experience to learn about the food, the culture, the music, the dancing, the people, all of it. And my favorite part of Rotary International is how intersectional the organization really is. If you're a leadership type, you can go and head on with your own projects, or if you're the type that just wants to support, you can go and just offer a helping hand. That's excellent. That's excellent. So as a professional working in the environmental remediation industry, many people probably don't really understand what kinds of projects these 
types of companies are taking on and what types of activities in general are done to help mediate local projects and ecosystems. Can you give us a little insight into that world? Absolutely, yes. Remediation is a surprisingly intersectional topic as well, as certain communities are impacted worse than others. For example, factory towns and redlining and other social socioeconomic issues. Many contaminated sites, which are also known as Superfund sites. Superfund sites are the larger contaminated sites that require a lot more funds, Superfund, to, to remediate and clean up. But a lot of them are even as small as your neighborhood gas station or your your neighbor whose home, their residential home, has an underground storage tank that was so old it ended up leaking. These are different types. There are many different types. There's historic fill where, you know, contaminated soil was brought onto a property to level it off or to bring up the elevation for train tracks or new buildings or cities. Some of these sites are in wetland areas, which are sensitive receptors, swamplands that, you know, they needed to um, add more land to build on. And uh, over time, when you're looking at old aerial imagery and topographic maps, you can see that changes happen over time. And sometimes clean soil is used. Sometimes it's responsibly developed. Other times they, people just used what they had and there weren't as many regulations back then, which is, you know, a double-edged sword. Some people are concerned about the cost of remediation. And that's why some companies are very lenient with creative alternative methods of remediation, like simple polygons and alternative standards with working with the Department of Environmental Protection. So what kinds of sites do we have? Sometimes there's spills, sometimes there's, um, you know, tanks, and sometimes there's due diligence where people are just researching their property. A lot of them are tanks or chemical spills, like manufacturing facilities. Some of them are inks, like printer ink, for example, or like cardboard where they're printing ink on cardboard. Landfills, it's amazing how common landfills are, but people take their garbage to the curb and then they forget about it. And what happens after the trash leaves your house? Well, it goes to a big pile and all sorts of delicious juices, um, you know, with surface runoff flows into different receptors like rivers or into the ground because we have a whole underground water system right beneath your feet there could be water underground that we use to drink if you've ever seen water towers while you're driving or when you're in your community and you know it's like above ground and it's a big orb and there's it's on a pole that's actually a really deep well that's drilled hundreds of feet underground where um there's fractures strikes and dips where the water flows in and it gets sucked up the, the tower and we use that water to drink. And of course there's filtering processes and treatment. However, it takes a lot of work and a lot of funds to take care of our water. And if we just did a better job of not contaminating it and watching what we buy and what we use, then it wouldn't require so much extra work. 
for example, in Florida, they're they're sucking up so much water out of the ground that the wetlands are actually collapsing and the land is actually collapsing. And uh, that causes a lot of chain reactions, which is uh, an ecological cascade. And um, what can we do about it? Well, conserve water and, you know, look at our properties, look at our tanks, make sure that we're inspecting them, making sure that we're communicating with each other and raising awareness. There's a lot of things that we can do, but sometimes people get overwhelmed. And that's why we have to come together as a community and realize that many hands make light work. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great segue. So what are some of the challenges that you faced on your environmental activism journey and how did you overcome them? That's a great question. You know, I think that the biggest challenge is just making time and, you know, getting people to make time because everyone has their own personal plans and endeavors and they're busy. A lot of it is just getting people together and, uh, you know, creating a streamlined system to enable people to just be able to show up and get to work without having to coordinate too much. You know, working at the garden, in my, you know, my humble personal opinion, is much better than getting stuck in traffic and walking around the mall. Nice. And would you say that some of these experiences and challenges that you might have faced over kind of your earlier experiences with community service have been able to bring aspects that you've learned into your new professional career? And oh, Absolutely. Yes. I mean, any sort of interpersonal relationship and communication and a group is going to assist me in my career. If your ideas, your experience, and your wisdom were all wrapped up in seeds of potential action for you to give to others, what advice would you give to someone that is also considering getting involved in their community like you have? Thank you for that question. And um, my advice for someone who looks to pursue start today. Every little action matters, whether it's turning off your air conditioner for a couple hours or turning off your computer when you're not home or, you know, turning off the water while you're brushing your teeth, whether it's picking up a book and reading it or, you know, going online and reading posts or watching free documentaries on YouTube. Start today. It, it, it doesn't matter. You don't have to spend hours or be a scientist or be an engineer. Like you don't have to have a fancy title. Pick up your friends or, you know, meet meet your friends on the street and go pick up some trash. Like it's amazing how momentum works. Relying on your emotional regulation and your endocrine system, like, you know, serotonin, the gratification you get from interaction, dopamine, the gratification you get from hard work, dopamine, all of these amazing chemicals in your brain create momentum. You know, just like inertia, the laws of physics, an object in motion stays in motion. Which is it's beautiful and beautifully said. I really thank you. Thank you. So what resource, maybe a book or website or film, I know you mentioned the story of plastic and in some of those series what other what other one or two might have been exceptionally and exceptional for you 
Plastic, A Toxic Love Story is an amazing book that I read in college and did a presentation on. And it was really just like a great book that I enjoyed reading. But that's a great book that gave me a lot of perspective. The Story of Stuff on YouTube, we already talked about that. So how would you like people to contact you that might want to learn more and volunteer for you or with you? Yeah, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook, but I prefer LinkedIn and Instagram. Samantha underscore Waldron underscore BS. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And it was, it was a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much, Jenny. If you haven't yet visited your local Green Online Hub, then please visit gogreenlocally.org and check out the directories for events, groups, businesses, online resources, and local support listings for your area. If you find something is missing, then let us know or just log in and add it. These are community free sharing directories.